But now that Ford and GM and soon all the other automakers have bust the doors open to this, I think we're, we already saw announcements um, a week or two ago from some of these networks that they're going to start, start installing these Tesla connectors at their charters. So from the calculation, just strictly monetarily in terms of the charging revenue of other cars, say a Ford or a GM or soon everybody else, uh, charging at Tesla superchargers, you will also have to subtract all of the Tesla owners that are going to be charging at non-superchargers in the future that they weren't doing thus far. So, you know, I it's not clear to me that this, this is going to be a net benefit even in that calculation uh, for Tesla, because in the U.S. market, Tesla has, they're by far their largest market share. It's like well over 50% of all EVs sold today, 60, whatever, 62, 65% of the market are Tesla so far. So, you know, if a certain portion of those 65% start charging at non-Tesla chargers where they weren't doing so before, that could end up being, we don't know, but it could end up being as large or a larger number than those of the minority EVs, the other 35, 40% that now in the future will start charging at Tesla superchargers. James Ford, who runs the Pragmatic Investor Investing Group on Seeking Alpha, and Anton Walman, a longtime Seeking Alpha analyst, join us for a bull bear conversation on everybody's favorite stock, Tesla. Thank you both for joining us today. Really appreciate it. I'm going to start with the bull, I think. James, you want to lay out your thesis for the investing experts audience? Yeah, so, you know, Tesla is one of those companies that, you know, gets a lot of hate from people, also a lot of love. Of course, the valuation is, you know, a big point of contention with the bears. But I think for the bulls, you know, we have to say that you can't really value Tesla as a regular auto company, right? There's so much more that goes into into the company. It has other sources of revenue. You know, it has other business segments, right? Whether it's selling solar panels and of course, you know, the kind of technology that, that they're developing. You have to understand it more as a bit of a tech company kind of see those possibilities for other revenues right and i think that's what we've seen in recent weeks i mean we've seen this big run-up in the stock since the um since the year started and also quite recently in the last few months and a lot of that can be attributed to some of the latest news that we've got right so i recently wrote an article on tesla and the recent deal struck with general motors which will enable their evs to use the supercharger network and i talked about why this is a big um a big catalyst for Tesla and how this could potentially lead to billions in profit. And of course, the GM deal, which you know, follows a similar deal with Ford that was struck a few weeks ago, will of course allow these cars to charge on the Tesla supercharging network, right? Why is this good for Tesla? Well, we can imagine that Tesla will make a substantial amount of revenues from this. And, you know, there was a report by Piper Sandler talking about the potential of making $3 billion in revenues by 2030 from non-Tesla users and $5.4 billion by 2032. So I decided to look into this and crunch the numbers in my latest article. Now, if we look at the financial summary of Tesla's um, results, we can see that they have uh, three different segments and... The revenues that would uh, be from superchargers would be held under the services and other revenue uh, segment, which in 2022 uh, brought in about 4.39 billion. Right? We can't now. We don't know exactly how much of that is 
uh, due to the uh, use of the superchargers but we have that number as a kind of top of how much it could be and now we can try and estimate uh, more or less how much this is now Piper Sounder doesn't give us an exact idea of why and how they reach those numbers that I mentioned before but I did find a Goldman Sachs um, article where they talked about you know how much the Tesla supercharging network could make potentially right so they have this table we have on the one hand Tesla superchargers and then daily uh, EV charges on each supercharger and then an idea of how much revenue that could bring right so for example with 50,000 superchargers and five um, EVs charging every day uh, Goldman Sachs calculated that Tesla would be making about 958 million right so if we look at the data that we have today for Tesla we know that there's roughly about 4 million Teslas out there and we know that there's roughly a little under 50 I think about 45,000 superchargers today right so you know, I crunch these numbers and basically if you have about 4 million Teslas I said maybe charging twice a week on these superchargers that it would imply about uh, 1.14 million charges this would imply that Tesla today is making 3.3 billion now that does include a lot of other things like services so potentially this could be a bit less but you know overall we can see that th there is some sense to these numbers right so I decided to project uh, how these numbers could look like in the future moving forward you know using some data from the IEA right where you know there'll be about 350 million EVs by 2030 right I calculated that realistically Tesla could make somewhere between you know three and nine billion right well three billion is the low end that would be Piper Sun evaluation now I estimated that this could be uh, quite a bit more maybe roughly around nine billion right and this would be if Tesla controls about 2.4 percent of the EV charging market going through the internet I also managed to find an idea of how much this uh, could affect the bottom line right so how much in earnings this could um, translate to and we have this tweet from Elon Musk back in 2022 saying you know, he was asked about the gross margin on the supercharger and he said that they aim for 30% gross margin or 10% profitability, right? So ultimately that 3 billion could lead to about 3 million in pre-tax earnings. And this is basically, I think, one of the reasons that we've seen the stock run up so much in recent weeks. Now, of course, you know, it's impossible to know exactly what, what moves stocks, but this is one of the fundamentals I think that has been contributing to the stock rally and overall I think it's uh, you know it's very bullish for Tesla and it kind of shows the underlying principle that you know Tesla is kind of more than an auto company right and there's so many other avenues that it can it can use to to get those revenues all right so um, maybe I can jump in here and uh provide uh, uh, also an additional perspective here. I think we should go back in time a little bit to look at the history of how these charging networks developed and, and the standards that went into them. Going back to about 2010, 2011, that was when Tesla proposed their, uh, their version of a new standard, which is that connector that we all see at the Tesla supercharger. It's a very, very elegant connector that combines both AC and DC charging in a very um, light, narrow cable that uh, I think everybody will agree is a fundamentally more customer-friendly connector. It's sort of like comparing USB versus some other previous flavor of USB, like a USB-A. It's just simply smaller and a little bit easier to handle. And um, the rest of the industry, however, decided 
to go with uh, two different other standards that subsequently have really whittled down to one. It's called CCS, Combined Charging Standard, that really combines an AC and a DC, but they don't sit inside each other. They sit essentially on top of each other so that that makes for a very clunky connector. When you go to one of these CCS chargers, you will see that it's a pretty pretty fat piece, basically, that you have to stick into the car. In and of itself, it's uh, it functions just fine. It's just a bit ugly when you think about it. And it functions a little bit different in the European version thereof uh, than the U.S. one. But nevertheless, this went on for the last few years, and most automakers standardized on this. And now uh, what happened here in early May was that Ford decided that, you know what, um, starting in 2025, uh, we're going to put the uh, Tesla connector on our electric vehicles. They didn't explicitly say, and neither did GM, that they were going to abandon their old CCS connector. So in theory, one might at least suspect that maybe they will keep the other one also. I don't think they will at all. I think that they will get rid of the old CCS, but they never said so explicitly. So that leaves, at least leaves the possibility open there. But... Uh, we also have to look here at the differences between the North American market and the European market. In the European market, for those of us who travel around frequently in Europe, we see that uh, a large chunk of the cars uh, already today that charge at Tesla superchargers are non-Teslas. So in Europe, they've had these adapters that people are using uh, because it essentially became the law in Europe that all the other automakers have the right to charge at Tesla superchargers. So what is being implemented here in a slightly different way in the U.S. slash North American market um, has already been enforced as a practical matter in Europe. And even so, in the U.S., you can already today, you could have had for the last year, I mean, I have friends who afford F-150 Lightnings and so forth. They've been charging from Tesla superchargers for a year already. All you got to do is to buy an adapter. And so this has been working, but who wants to buy adapter, basically? You know, they're, 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 there's a subset of the market that wants um, to carry an adapter around and fiddle around with it. All other things equal, you want to get rid of it. But it's there, and so this thing has been possible. All you needed to do is to essentially download the Tesla app and create an account, and then you were charging. And people were doing it, but most people weren't even aware of it. So part of what GM and Ford have done here, and I assume all automakers are going to be announcing at some point within you know the near future, um, is to make also raise consumer awareness that they can take whatever cars to charge them at Tesla superchargers. Mind you, however, that it also works the other way around. So until now, there had been very little incentive for all the, all of these other charging networks. Uh, we all know several of them that, you know, there are Blink, ChargePoint, you go down the list, all of these other charging networks, uh, independent ones that are smaller, that aren't public, they, they, they had had very little incentive to install the Tesla connector, which they have been have, have had the right to do for a long time, because this is, after all, a standard. Tesla cannot charge money for a standard. So they can do this, but they haven't done so in the past, because at the end of the day, if you're a small fish and you're going to tangle with a large player that, um, you know, sort of controls the rest of the network, you're probably going to stay away from it. But now that Ford and GM and soon all the other automakers have bust the doors open to this, 
I think we're, we already saw announcements um, a week or two ago from some of these networks that they're going to start start installing these uh, um, Tesla connectors at their charters. So from the calculation, just strictly monetarily in terms of the charging revenue of other cars, say a Ford or a GM or soon everybody else, uh, charging at Tesla superchargers, you will also have to subtract all of the Tesla owners that are going to be charging at non-superchargers in the future that they weren't doing thus far. So, you know, I it's not clear to me that this, this is going to be a net benefit, even in that calculation uh, for Tesla, because in the U.S. market, Tesla has they're by far their largest market share. It's like well over 50% of all EVs sold today, 60, whatever, 62, 65% of the market are Tesla so far. So, you know, if a certain portion of those 65% start charging at non-Tesla chargers where they weren't doing so before, that could end up being, we don't know, but it could end up being as large or a larger number than those of the minority EVs, the other 35, 40%, that now in the future will start charging at Tesla superchargers. So anyway, I think that's uh, maybe a beginning, uh, and maybe we can uh, you know take it from there. Right. I just I had a question. I I was wondering in terms then. So your thesis here is that because Tesla owners are going to be charging at other stations, what kind of um, infrastructure is in place right now? So we know, for example, there's about forty thousand superchargers out there. What is the competing infrastructure out there then? Do you have any idea on the numbers for that? You know, I don't have them in front of me, but it's it's a, it's a you know it's a number that is not too different from the Tesla superchargers. If you look at the number of DC chargers that are out there and so forth, the difference is that thus far, Tesla's had the best chargers and the the best in the sense that they've been maintained the best. If you go to some of these stations along the freeways, for those of us who have owned Teslas and driven them and compared them with other vehicles, it is clear to me that Tesla's had the best charging network, not just because of the speed of the actual connector or any of those things, but the, the biggest thing has frankly been reliability. And the reliability of many of these other networks has been poor. You show up at one of these networks and for whatever reason, they don't function. You have to, you know, their app doesn't work, their car doesn't work, uh, this thing is just down, or there has been some physical impairment along the way that, um, that basically... Um, hasn't been maintained. This, I can, I can, there's chargers that I've seen over the years that have been sitting there broken for, forget weeks, some of them going into the months. So what Tesla's done very well is that they've maintained their charging stations very well and their re reliability in terms of just plug and play has been very, very good. And that's been their advantage. It's not so much that they have more chargers than the rest, the other uh, companies, when you combine them, they have um, roughly a similar number, but the reliability just has been poor. And now this combined charging standard, so to speak, not, not, not in terms of the actual name of the standard being implemented, but the one that uh, Tesla has been using exclusively before, and now everybody will be using, I think will uh, put the feet under the fire um, uh, and uh, uh, really even out some of these reliability concerns across the board. So I think that to the extent that this was an advantage for Tesla in the past, and I believe I've been saying since 2013 that uh, the charging network and its reliability has been Tesla's number one differentiator. That that was, the, you know, especially the last couple of years when heavy competition has come onto the market with uh, lots of cars with more than 250 miles of range. 
uh, I think that this has been the number one reason by far that customers would buy a Tesla over another brand. And now with this advantage uh, being reduced quite considerably, uh, I think that this will really threaten Tesla's ability to sell cars on the margin. And we see it to some extent in Europe. I mean, Tesla's market share in Europe, uh, whatever the last few months, I mean, we're talking uh, market share numbers that are way, way, way below what they are in the U.S. And we can argue as to whether um, the fact that Europe has already opened up Tesla's charging network has, has had a... Uh, has been a main reason for that or not. But I think that going forward, certainly in the U.S., I mean, U.S. is a different driving pattern than Europe. In U.S., people do use superchargers a little bit more for long-distance travel, whereas in Europe, they use chargers more for, you know, people who live in apartment buildings and they charge. They literally, in Europe, they have more chargers deployed on the streets, like at uh, where the parking meters are and so forth. You know, you walk up and down the streets of Paris or Stockholm or whatever, and you see tons of these things, whereas in the U.S., cities you're not you're not going to see many of those um, so I think that when this now evens out I, I think that this will uh, reduce the propensity of people to buy a Tesla versus another brand because really the charging network is no longer a factor in your purchase decision going forward right I did want to raise a couple of points there uh, j just for the record I'm also I am originally from Europe so I've I've been living in Spain and now it is true that they have a much smaller share there. I will say I came to America through uh, through Oslo, through Norway, which is the uh, which is the leading uh, country in terms of EVs, and Tesla does dominate the market market a lot. There, just a just a little uh, point there. But like you say, it is true that the that Tesla does dominate the market a lot less in Europe. Is it because of the uh, charging network? Well, we don't know that for sure. But you pointed out that the Tesla network is a lot more robust it's it is just better i mean I, th I thought you were the tesla bull at one point you were just talking so highly of tesla but my point is that you also mentioned that companies are gonna or sorry users are going to also be using the other charges therefore the revenue argument doesn't apply but i mean you can only have it one or two ways right either the tesla network is that much better they've lost the competitive advantage but they're going to keep the revenues or they're going to lose the revenues because people are going to use the other charges. But in that case, was it ever that much of a competitive advantage? So I, I don't know if that was clear. Well, I think it has clearly been a competitive advantage uh, to this date, because if you look at the long distance travel that then people do, I mean, the proverbial driving from L.A., to San Francisco, which was a real pain in the neck with m many of these other charging networks. But you know, again, they had chargers there. The problem was you could not rely on them as well. Uh, whereas now that um, other, you know, cars A will be able to use the Tesla ones and the Tesla users will be able to use the newly refurbished um, chargers that will be installed here in the coming months by all of these other competing charging networks that will presumably raise their reliability and ease of use. So it really will even out the field because now you have one connector um, you know, that is going to be integrated uh, far more better with all of the cars. So I think that that will just really not completely eliminate necessarily, but largely remove 
the consideration for buying a car because right now buying a car is for some people i mean look some people who buy an ev they don't just don't charge away from their home at all or almost never so for them it's not a big issue they buy an electric car it goes to they deliver the kids to school they buy to go to the supermarket they go to the soccer field and you know the average american travels 35 miles per day 35 miles so the 250 mile car is really overkill for most people on most days so people also have on average more than two cars so like one of their cars typically never ventures far away from home it's this uh, around town runabout and then they have some other vehicle that is being used uh, for that those far more less common um, road trips where they travel hundreds and hundreds of miles. And um, that's where, um, you know, it's, it's for that car that if you wanted to make that car your EV, that Tesla had the advantage up until recently. And I think that now that is going to really be reduced pretty dramatically in terms of a purchase consideration because, hey, if I have another car, yes, I can charge a Tesla supercharger, but also at the same time, all these other networks are now going to be on that exact same standard. There is no need for an adapter. And when when and when they make these upgrades, now that they have really the same connector a Tesla does, I think that they will um, find a huge incentive all of a sudden to better maintain all of these and to increase the reliability of their chargers because now it really is they're really pulling from the same user pool. In the past, those other networks, they were really different users. I mean, they were the users who were buying, say, a Chevy Bolt or uh, whatever other uh, EVs, that are, Audi e-tron and Jaguar I-Pace and so forth that people were driving around. They were, there was very little cross-pollinization in the U.S. market. And then all of that changed a little bit over a year ago in Europe first because of the legal mandates there. And now they're coming to the U.S. not because of a legal mandate, but because Tesla, for whatever reason, you said, hey, you know, it'll just... <laughs> We'll just give this thing to you guys, and then let's see what happens. And uh, I think that from Tesla's perspective, I think that that is, um, I don't think that's a positive for their um, for their bottom line. I think that they're going to be, A, selling fewer cars that way, and uh, yes, they will get some revenue from these other cars that will be charging on Tesla's network, but it could be offset to some degree um, by, you know, as we, as we discussed earlier, Tesla owners starting to uh, charge at other charging stations. So either way, the number is going to be tiny on that side. We're talking, you know, maybe on a good day, a few hundreds of millions of dollars per year in potential profit, uh, which is really a drop in the bucket in the, in the scheme of Tesla's near $1 trillion market cap. Uh, but I think the bigger risk to Tesla is simply the one that they will, um, you know, have removed their main argument for buying a Tesla over a, uh, you know, whatever other brand you have out there, a Volvo or a Volkswagen. Well, I think you do make some compelling arguments there. And, you know, you, you could question whether, you know, the move to open up the, the charges is going to be profitable for Tesla, whether they did it because of that or, you know, Elon Musk did come out and say, well, you know, we're just, we're just trying to bolster EV adoption and, you know, Obviously, he cares a lot about the environment. Um, I guess my issue would be, you say that with that with the opening up the network, that they are losing their main kind of competitive advantage. I would say, well, it's kind of subjective, but I do believe there are a lot of other reasons why Tesla has become such a leader. I think there's a clear product differentiation to an extent. And 
you know, I've I've compared kind of Tesla before to to the Apples, right? So an Apple isn't perceived as a lot of the other smartphones, and I don't think that Tesla is either. And I don't know if you wanted to talk to this a little bit, but in my previous article on Tesla, I also talked about uh, the driverless technology, right? Which I think is also a big selling point behind uh, what Tesla is doing. And in fact, the argument there, which was made by Elon Musk a while ago, was that they could even sell cars, you know, at a loss. And the idea is that once the driverless technology is um, enabled and they can monetize that in a certain way, whether it's by, you know, using it as a services or or selling kind of a subscription, that that would also, you know, greatly uh, benefit the company, right? Actually have a quote here from Musk. It's a bit of a mouthful. It says, but actually we do have this unique strategy advantage that we have. We're making a car that if autonomy pans out and we think it will, where the assets actually will be worth a hell a lot more in the future than it is now. So it is taking to be possible to say it at zero profit, but still have the net present value of future cash flows associated with the asset very significant. So again, that's also something that I think is often overlooked with a company like Tesla, which is also... Uh, yeah, basically a tech company and the value of all that data, right? Now, if we look at, for example, a chart of all the miles that are being driven by the Tesla cars and how that AI, and that is basically why I think they can win the, the driverless technology race is because they have that kind of a, they have that asset already on the road kind of picking up that data. I don't know. I know it's a little bit of a change in subject. I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit at all. Sure. Um, no, the uh, the whole issue of a self-driving car is, of course, I mean, it's kind of a little bit of a holy grail type situation, right? Where, you know, if a car truly can drive itself, and what we're, we have to really define the terms here because it's a lot of talk about self-driving and assisted driving and so forth. But when Elon Musk talks about it, he talks about it in these robo-taxi terms. And that means there's nobody behind the wheel. There is no steering wheel. There doesn't have to be a steering wheel. And the car just goes and somehow knows where it's going and can make it there safely and all of that. You can put your blind grandma in the back seat and this thing can just barrel away in some direction and you're going to be very happy with it somehow. And, you know, this thing is still a bit a ways. Um, you know, you can do these things. Other automakers have this thing up and running today in San Francisco and Phoenix and so forth. You got the, the GM company Cruise. You've got uh, Waymo, which is owned by Google, uh, Alphabet. Those guys have um, uh, those guys have products for that. But, you know, they, they go on fairly slow speeds. They go in a very tight geofenced environment. And when um, Tesla today, you know, they... You know, when they file their regulatory filings for, um, you know, for, for example, with the Public Utilities Commission in California, the various bodies that are supposed to regulate these things, they never make the claim that they will ever get to uh, what we call in industry terms, so-called level five. Level five is when there's no person in the car and this can, car can go anywhere. Level four is the same, except that it's somehow geofenced a little bit. And uh, so uh, it is possible one day that Tesla and or others will get to the point where the car can drive anywhere. But there's not, that's another um, issue from saying that the cars that are already on the road today 
are going to be upgradable to that. Uh, and that is where I think Tesla is going to get into trouble, not just with the consumer, but potentially also it could be a legal liability because the company has been selling their products ever since October of 2016 with a promise that they are going to be software upgradable to so-called level five. If you look at the initial press conference that Elon Musk held in the third week of October in 2016, he said that the cars that are rolling off the line today in October 2016, and of course everything going forward, uh, are going to be upgradable to level five, specifically level five. And of course, nothing has happened. I mean, we're talking, we're going on seven years now. Is it seven years? 2016, 20, yes, it's seven years. And of course, there's there's no, I mean, if you buy a Tesla today, the instructions are very clear. You have to keep your eyes on the road and hands on the wheel. Tesla is not even a hands uh, off the wheel type system, which many other automakers have from GM to Mercedes are selling cars today that have been delivered in the case of GM, they've been delivering them since, let's see now, 2017 or 2018, where you are legally allowed to take your hands off the wheel. You still have to, um, you can't take your eyes off the road because they have a camera that is monitoring your eyes. And even though you have uh, funky sunglasses on, uh, this thing will detect whether you're really paying attention. And it will literally, I've tested this, so I know I've, I've taken a smartphone and tried to cheat a little bit by glancing onto my smartphone. And this thing has all of these lights that light up like a circus carnival in the middle of the steering wheel is basically saying, you know, you know stop looking at your phones to, to look at the road, even though you're hands off legally. And Tesla's not even at that level yet. So when Tesla says that they're going to get there, you know, I see a lot of obstacles on the, on, on, in, in front of them to actually deliver on a product that will meet uh, all of their requirements. So uh, that's where the, the uh, rhetoric that uh, Elon often engages in is a bit different from when Tesla actually has to put text, uh, you know, legally available to the various authorities. First of all, with respect to the user instructions for the car that are very, very clear, uh, as well as the, what they file with the um, the various government bodies that are supposed to uh, monitor the testing activity for this. And if you're if 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 what they're filing with those authorities, for example, the leading one, which is California, is true, then Tesla is many many years away from even producing anything that can be upgradable to level five. I'm not saying they can't ever get there. I'm saying that uh, this is nowhere um, uh, near uh, right around the corner. And we've seen these promises every single year now for at least seven years that this thing is a quick software upgrade here and this is going to work. And it was always, you know, basically six months to a year out at some point. And this thing is no closer in any legal definition of driving itself today than it was seven years ago. Right. Well, I see the point that you make. And it, it is true that, you know, Tesla has had a tendency to overpromise and you could say underdeliver in some aspects. Uh, I'm just wondering then, I mean, you, so your argument is that you know, this technology won't really be there in, until a few years, but do you see any other companies that could actually beat Tesla to the punch here? You know, I first of all, I think the problem um, is is far harder than everybody in the in the industry has been saying. You remember going back to about 2014 or so, which was when the real 
uh, hype started emerging out of the blue, like out of left field. Suddenly, everybody started talking about, and I published articles on Seeking Alpha at the time saying, this is the most overhyped thing in a long while. It will take many, many more years than people think. At the time, not just Tesla, but other automakers were at least insinuating that we were going to get to it, like a truly full self-driving car, level five. Not that they said that they actually had a product or anything, let alone that could be software upgradable, but they said that something was coming. Something was coming within the next three or four years. And so, in other words, everybody at the time were arguing that certainly by 2019, there would be tons of these things flying around. Nobody has come up with a product yet that could possibly deliver on regular customer expectations. And the, 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 the stuff that GM has in San Francisco and a couple of other places now and that Waymo has in similar locations, I don't really count them as finished products because they are, you know, they, these are very clunky products. They're very, very, first of all, they're very expensive. You look at the amount of hardware that goes into these things. I mean, you're talking about many tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, that go into making these systems. You also have to make them very redundant because what if one of these systems fail, right? I mean, what happens? It's like being caught in a, you know, in a submarine trying to, you know, <laughs> look at the Titanic and suddenly system fails and the poof, uh, you know, you, that, that's the end of it. So, you know, these systems, many of them, have to have redundancy as well and that, that makes them very very expensive so when you when you ask the question will other automakers get there i'm not saying necessarily that any other automaker is going to get to a full self-driving car in a mass produced way any faster than tesla i don't think they are i'm saying that they are getting there faster than tesla in these very specialized applications, again, these Waymo and Cruise, which are not really, again, the same product, because a consumer cannot go and buy these products, and they can't use them to drive anywhere. So maybe one day they will get there, and maybe one day they'll get there at a price that people can afford in some form or fashion. But I still view it as still so many years out that it really, in my opinion anyway, should not be on anyone's investment horizon, whether you're involved in Tesla or any other automotive company, I mean, this is still in the kind of the R&D um, uh, stages because the intelligence, I mean, my house cat has more situational awareness than a self-driving car at this point. I mean, this car just you know, randomly was like, well, stop someplace. And it's like, why? well, what is it thinking? What is it doing? And that's not good. You know, I mean, any, you know, my, my half blind, half deaf, you know, great grandma could kind of figure out the situation in a nanosecond a lot faster than some of these implementations of AI that really pertain to driving in real traffic in like you know real situations. Um, and that that it's going to be a while, I think, before you can get. Uh, I mean, I was just. I mean, I just, this is totally anecdotal. I was just driving around yesterday at lunchtime, and you know, the the red lights were out. There were no lights, so people, it was like total chaos. It was like uh, something out of Baghdad 1952 or Calcutta in uh, 1967. I mean, it was complete chaos. I mean, and I said to myself, dear Lord, if any computer is going to figure out how I'm going to muscle myself through this maze like you know, Don Corleone on four wheels, basically. I mean, this is just not going to happen. A a car that is run by a computer is probably just going to sit there still, 
block the road and just stop anybody else from moving forward in using what we might call an economic spontaneous order a little bit to uh, to get through. So, you know, I think this is what, I mean, Mercedes once told me in a presentation uh, in one of the earlier uh, level three uh, R&D cars. I took a ride in it. It was, I think it was like 2014 or so. And they said what the conclusion they had arrived at then, that's like nine years ago, was that, you know, the more they look at the problem, the more difficult they see how it is to get to the end, uh, you know, nirvana here, where a car truly can effortlessly drive itself around. They had a book that was about this thick that consisted of thousands of edge cases, corner cases that they haven't figured out yet how to make the computer intelligent enough to solve. Eventually, again, you know, decades from now, I think they and others, everybody will eventually get there. But they said, look, in the short term, you know, these technologies can be wonderful, perhaps, to assist the driver in you know, um, in, in, in terms of avoiding certain bad situations like auto braking, like almost any car that's sold in the market now in the U.S. market comes standard with auto braking. There are a few exceptions, but almost all cars have. So you basically are, it's almost impossible for you to rear end another car if you buy almost any brand new car in the market today. And that is something that it's a limited functionality, but it could be a very good one. People get distracted. They Again, they look down on their phone or something else, and then this will prevent them from just doing that really horrible rear end that you know we've all seen a hundred times in traffic over the you know in our, in our lifetimes. Right. I mean, I think I agree partly with what you're saying. I'm not saying that you know this technology that Tesla and everyone for that matter is developing is gonna you know change the world in the next few years, but I kind of disagree with your point. You say, well, this is too far in the future to even be thinking about. And I think that as investors, isn't that kind of the point? I mean, we're here to kind of invest in the companies today that are going to change tomorrow. And I think that that's a lot of what people are looking for when they when they think about investing in Tesla, right? I mean, it's a little bit like saying, well, you know, Apple in the 1980s, oh, they have these computers. They're not going to do anything until 20 years from now, maybe, but... Still, it would have been a good investment in the 1980s, right? Well, it would have been a good investment after 1997. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, the, you know, there were a few years there when, you know, Apple was down. I mean, I don't tell me the exact percentage, but I mean, this thing was uh, down for the count and arguably, uh, you know, a couple of quarters away from bankruptcy. And then, uh, you know, they managed to sort of pull pull the plane off from uh, right as it was brushing against the treetops, you know, so... Uh, you know, the, I think the circumstances are a little bit different. Look, we're, we're really, I mean, when it comes to self-driving cars, I mean, and, and I mean, this is really uncharted territory. I mean, I mean, I mean, if if it happens, if it really can be made to happen and can be made to happen at a price that people can afford, you know, I, you know, there's no question that it will have value. But when when you can't even I mean, there is today, it's just simply so far out, I think that. I mean, how does one um, incorporate that into, into into a thesis today that where we have really no evidence that the product, I mean, even, even if you throw an unlimited amount of money at the problem. So, you know, you take these Waymo and Cruise vehicles, right, that are driving around San Francisco and Phoenix and maybe a couple of other places now. Um, you know, money was not an object, right? So the amount of hardware that goes into them, the multiple LIDARs, you see all these little things protruding all, all around the top of the vehicle. Um, you know, money was not an object. And still, this is not really, 
a finished product that is consumer friendly that really can go anywhere so unlimited amount of money unlimited resources and it still isn't there i think that you know this is still a far far uh, way i mean it's not to say that there won't be progress. I mean, at some point, I mean, you just look at the curves, right, for computer intelligence, right? I mean, clearly computers are going to be able to process more situations. Sensors are getting cheaper. I mean, there's no doubt that all the ingredients are fundamentally there to at some point, uh, you know, maybe get to a substantially better product. But I mean, we, we're still not, I mean, we can, if you reach your arm out as far as you can reach it today with everything that we have under our belt, and there is still no self-driving anything that is an acceptable product, let alone at a, a consumable price. So I, I, I have a very hard time uh, using that as, um, as something that I would want to start discounting to present day value, uh, whether it's with Tesla or any other company. Right. I'd be curious to know then, do you have any, I mean, do you have any price target for, for Tesla? I mean, this is, I mean, you know, this is, there's so many things here. There's a lot of subjectivity, whatever, but I, the framework I have is this, let's say that the entire automotive market, and let's, for the sake of argument, just start out with what is Tesla worth as an automotive company? We can, throw all sorts of other things on top of it that is other businesses and what have you. But let's say Tesla's automotive business, what is it worth? We start out by saying, what is the entire automotive industry worth? So up until four years ago or so, the entire automotive industry was not significantly uh, uh, away from about a trillion dollars, slightly more than a trillion. Then Tesla essentially itself managed to get about a trillion dollar market cap, right? So you had an industry that was worth a trillion, and now we put, we take, you know, one giant block, like a big Lego of the same size as the combined mini Legos of all the other um, um, automakers, and suddenly the whole industry was worth about $2 trillion. So, but either way, we can, so we can play with either of those two numbers. We can say the whole industry ultimately should be worth a trillion dollars or it should be worth $2 trillion, or maybe the answer is somewhere in between. And of course, if you look far out into the future after inflation adjust all these things, so a trillion dollars ain't what it used to be. But no, let's use the smaller number to, for starters, like a trillion dollars for simplicity. And then you say, Let's say that the entire industry, the entire automotive industry, goes 100% electric. So that we, let's take the most favorable outcome for Tesla's ability to grab market share that could possibly be conceived. There's no more non-electric vehicles out there in the world. I mean, look, I, that's not going to happen, in my opinion, within 25 years or more. Uh, it will happen maybe a little faster in Western Europe and North America and you know China and a couple of other countries. But let's just go with the whole thing. Let's just say it's 100% of the market. Now, is Tesla, go what kind of terminal market share on a worldwide basis is Tesla going to get? Their, their, their total average, all geographies included, you include Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, the whole shebang. Um, you know, if if it is the case that, and, and then of course you assume that everybody in the industry has, you know, some sort of uh, similar uh, profit uh, picture, then, you know, Tesla would be worth, let's say Tesla gets 10%. I mean, I don't think they'll get 10%. I think the answer is that they get, they'll get somewhere south of 5%, but let's say they get 10%. 10% out of a trillion, 
that means that Tesla's market cap ceiling is about a hundred billion. And if the market cap today is a rounding error from a trillion, then I view that that's under that scenario as an for Tesla's automotive business, it will have it, it's got a basically a ninety percent downside. So that's that's the framework, and then we can play with the assumptions. You know, is the ultimate value not a trillion but two trillion? Because for whatever reason, the car business is just worth more than it isn't, and otherwise, and do we you know change some of these other assumptions? Let's say that only half the um, car market in the world goes all electric, well then Tesla's addressable market is half as large. On the other hand, if you assume that Tesla's gonna get 20% market share, well then you know, you've just doubled that assumption from 10. So, but that is the framework. So you have to look at, in my opinion, the terminal state of the market when the market has reached its peak all electric um, um, uh, penetration in terms of uh, new sales. And then you say, well, what's Tesla's uh, market share of, of, of that market? And I'm saying it's you know considerably lower than 10% of that market share. Uh, and I think that, uh, but I'm giving them for the sake of argument up front that they, the 100% of the market would be all electric. But in that scenario, their ceiling uh, as a market cap is like 100 billion. I think in the end, it'll come down to something less than half of that. So my personal price target is that it'll be, you know, Tesla's worth, you know, somewhere south. Their automotive business is worth uh, south of $50 billion. You make some compelling arguments there, but I think, again, I think that kind of misses the point that I made originally, which was that, you know, you have to look at Tesla as something a bit more than an auto company, right? So, you know, that is the valuation just the auto company. However, you know, there's there's so much more that I believe Tesla can do with the, the technology and the kind of data that they're, they're acquiring. And just as I said, for example, you know, having that AI kind of uh, driving as a service and just just in general, this new idea, I think that people are thinking about is the the um, the car is more of a computer, right? Where, you know, the car is a it's just a lot more than just getting you from point A to point B. It's a home entertainment system. It's it's all kinds of things. Right. So, again, I think the possibilities are larger and. And I think saying Tesla's got ten percent of the market in the future might might be conservative. You know, like I said, I think you look at again. I know I've drawn this conversation, uh, this comparison a lot of times before, but you know, Apple has what almost fifty percent of the smartphone share. So you know, I, I don't think it's it's crazy to think that that it will go up. I think that the product is differentiated in a lot of ways, superior in a lot of ways, and I think I think it's a conser- very very conservative estimate. Well, clearly, to the extent that there are other businesses on top of the auto business, I mean, you would have to layer that on top. I mean, Tesla makes whatever solar panels, you know, they have, they make battery packs that they sell for storage. I mean, those businesses are legitimately um, something that would need to be added on top of the valuation of the automotive business. I mean, you have to sort of look at them a bit separately from each other. So that's absolutely true, I think. Uh, so, yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. I mean, then... Um, but uh, you know they have to look at you know what are what are those companies worth you know that that are engaged in those businesses today and when I look around and I look at the various solar companies and the, and all the companies that have uh, battery storage businesses you know these are low multiple type of situations where uh, profitability is exceptionally low and they get a very low multiple on them so and uh, and in terms of moving the needle on the market cap I mean I I think that. Um, the big scheme of things, uh, yes, they do add on top of 
<clears throat> whatever number I would ascribe to their automotive business, let's say fifty billion or something uh, like that. Um, I mean, it's not fun. It doesn't fundamentally sort of change my investment conclusion, but you know, clearly, when you're you know adding up a sum of the parts valuation, uh, you will then add on to. I mean, look, this little uh, hu what what do they call it? The human optimus, the 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 dancer in a leotard, you know, whatever the it's gonna go and pick up garbage for people or whatever it was. That product, you know, I mean, if they can make a the best humanoid ro robot in the world that actually can go around and be my personal butler, you know, serve me, um, you know, champagne and chocolates here as I'm sitting in my living room and uh, otherwise eating bonbons and uh, watching television, I mean, that would be wonderful. I mean, that that that, that will definitely be worth something. I mean, I. I I'd love to see that, but you know, at this point, I mean, I, I'm. It's not obvious to me that they are going to have a better product there, or that anybody will have a really good product there anytime soon. But uh, to the extent that that happens, I mean, I can totally see why you know somebody out there makes a household robot robot of some sort that can help uh, elderly people with uh, whatever household chores. Somebody's going to make money from that. Maybe Tesla will do it. That I can't, I can't rule that out. Uh, and if so, that would be on top of that, uh, you know, proverbial 50 billion that I uh, kind of laid out uh, a few minutes ago. Well, if anyone can do it, right? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So anyway, uh, one thing, the other thing I would say that, okay, so that the, the long, my long term thesis is that, again, the just taking as a base, the base building block, the largest Lego, perhaps, at least that we can see today, is the automotive business. You, you, that's that's like in the long-term terminal value, as I said, that's how I arrive at it being worth maybe about $50 billion. But then you look at, you know, what's, what's, what's going to be important for the stock relatively short term, and not today or tomorrow or next week, perhaps, but I'm talking within a few short months, not years. And my thesis there is simply that um, earnings estimates. I mean, the, what drives most stocks. I mean, if you you know, it doesn't matter almost what industry we're looking at. I mean, this just goes to back to Graham days, uh, just the inception of uh, stock market analysis. I mean, when estimates come down, when Wall Street reduces their earnings estimates, stocks tend to go down. And what we've seen in the last few months, right, starting basically since the beginning of this year, since January is that starting in January of this year, earnings estimates for Tesla started to come down. And now they're sitting at, uh, you know, about three and a quarter, 3.30, something like that on average, uh, dollars per share for 2023. They were at some point at the beginning of the year, I think four and change. And, um, you know, I think what's set them down here are the, all these price cuts, with, which obviously generated far lower margins. And I don't think that has played out yet. And at some point, if... To the extent that Wall Street continues to lower their earnings estimates, it becomes all other things equal, very difficult to swim against that grain. That is, uh, that's that that's a bit of an uphill battle. That you know, a lot of things have to go right. And clearly, in Tesla's case, I mean, hello, the stock has gone from basically from 100 to 270 here over the last few months. A lot of other things have gone right, whatever they may be. Uh, but all other things equal, a lot of things have to go right. When if earnings estimates come down, one way or the other, <clears throat> that tends to be the, the, the defining gravity that determines a stock. So I view that on 
on the on the from a perspective of a few months, not a few years, but a few months, I think that that will be the factor that will um, you know will cause me to be more bearish than not on the relatively short term. Again, not this day or this week, but I mean in a matter of a couple of months. Right. Well, I can't necessarily disagree with that because, as I've kind of mentioned already, I do. You know, I, I like to look at a lot of other factors as well, other than fundamentals, the macro, the technical uh, outlook. And like you say, Tesla has run a lot, and I do expect it to, to come down as well in in the coming months, perhaps. Um, I guess the difference is I would, I would see that as a buying opportunity, you know, whether you think about short term or long term. I mean, the momentum, the momentum is up and... I I would I would use that as an opportunity to buy. I guess that's the difference. Yeah. So the, the other thing I I, I I maybe I should mention too is that you know I think that you brought a couple of these upside potentials. Right? So for example, this or the one I was talking about, like the the humanoid robot, the Optimus. I mean, like clearly, if if that really comes through, right? I think that could be a huge positive, right? But there are also uh, black swans on the negative side. That are there that nobody can really. I mean, nobody has a clue whether they will happen and in when in what time frame. But I'm just thinking of all the legal exposure, right? Because you know you have legal exposure on so many levels. We talked earlier about this whole full full self driving thing, where Tesla's been making claims for years. I mean, there's a lot of legal liability there. We have no idea if this is going to go anywhere. I mean, it may turn out to be absolutely nothing. And then we have stuff that concerns Elon Musk outside of Tesla, right? I mean, he has now put himself in a different position um, in society overall, especially as a result of his uh, purchase of Twitter, that, I mean, you could imagine scenarios under which, I mean, he is essentially, you know, you could say that he's becoming a, a, a larger target from forces that will want to, you know, take him down a notch, uh, that, that, until a year ago, we're, we're never going to, you know, think about doing that with nearly the same ferocity that they might now consider doing. So, I mean, you have to look at it. You have to at some point, if I were, if I own the stock, I would be most worried perhaps waking up one day and just seeing like a thousand page indictment saying that for all of these, whatever they've cooked up, right? I mean, these may be coming from multiple angles of, of, uh, of, uh, of the equation, um, that they're going after him for some reason that may have been triggered by something that had nothing to do with Tesla. And, you know, that is, I had no idea how to uh, assign a probability to that happening, but it probably isn't zero, right? I mean, it's like, it's like the, at some point, you know, you hope that the probability that there's a house fire is also extremely low and that it won't happen in your lifetime, but the probability is not zero. And at some point you have, you have some, you buy insurance for, you know, fire risk, even though you don't think that you're going to have a fire in the next, you know, decade or whatever. So I would view that as, you know, a potential something that, I mean, if I, I would be, that would be the thing that would, you know, cause, you know, cause me to be, uh, um, uh, lose sleep at night if I were a, a shareholder, you know, to, to wake up one morning and see s some sort of significant legal action had been taken either against Tesla as a company, Musk as a person, because they're so intertwined. And, you know, you can, you know, that, you know, that that's one of those days when, you know, you could have the biggest down day of, of the company's history. So I would, I would, that would have to be in the back of my mind as an investor. You know, I'm not saying that it's a reason for somebody to be short the stock because again you can't you can't you know this is like we're again fumbling 
in, in, in something that is truly uncharted territory. But it, the, that, that uncharted charter territory goes both ways, is my point. Right. Well, like you say, I mean, I think, you know, Musk didn't make many friends buying Twitter. I'm sure he also made some fans, though. But I guess, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. I think, you know, if you, you start talking about the ro uh, Tesla robots and how speculative that is, I think that, you know, beginning to think about how the powers that be might want to take Elon Musk down is uh, also kind of jumping way into the realm of speculation. No, I agree. I mean, but that's what I'm saying it because because those things that they, they, they there are there are things that are out there that are very hard to put probabilities on. I'm just saying they go both ways, right? I mean, we have upside potential from some of those things that if they ever were to solve full self-driving at a cost-effective in a cost-effective way, and if this humanoid robot were to work and so forth in a cost-effective way, I mean, these would be really really big things. But there are also risks on the downside that are, would be really, really big if, you know, if any of those things were to come to pass. And I mean, you know, it's let's say, let's let's just take this whole self-driving thing. Okay, let's say that Tesla does solve it uh, for new products. But let's further say that the old products, the cars that have been sold to date, or maybe up until very recently, um, simply cannot be upgraded. You know, the hardware requires something more, and it's not cost-effective to retrofit them. Uh, the computer power with the modules that they once brought from uh, NVIDIA once were essentially getting themselves, and previous to that, it was that other Israeli company. All of those products, if they can't be upgraded, and then, you know, they get sued by uh, previous owners who said, look, I mean, I bought this car under the premise that it would be upgraded to full self-driving. Tesla's been very clear about that. It will be upgradable to full self-driving. And if it isn't upgradable to full self-driving, then, well, you know, we have a situation here, right? We have a, you know, what does Tesla owe me as a Tesla owner at that point? If I, if I can say like, look, I bought this car for this reason and you never delivered on it. And um, now, now what do I do? I've owned this car now for a few years. And, uh, I mean, shouldn't you, you know, is this, there a risk that Tesla has to buy back the car or send people a really big check to compensate? Will there be a settlement? I mean, all those tricky issues would come to pass. So, I, I mean, those things are not in, on top of investors' mind today, but they could be triggered just by, uh, uh, you know, even, even by the perverse result of an advancement in full self-driving ability on their new cars, because then people will start asking the question, well, whatever happened to the old cars where you promised that they would be upgradable? So, you know, that's a two-edged sword is my point. I guess we'll have to see. We'll, we'll have to have this conversation again in 10 years and either we'll be driving Tesla self-driving cars or Musk will be rotting away in jail. Well, you know, I mean, again, we, we don't know. These are a lot of, there are black swans and there are white swans. There are swans uh, to the upside that can happen. And um, uh, I would just like to say that there are also swans that could happen to the downside. I mean, it's, it's uh, this is a case where, uh, you know, um, you know company fortunes have turned around based on some of these matters um, very dramatically in the past. And this wouldn't, wouldn't be the first time that uh, conflict in this, you know, the example that I gave, a conflict between uh, whatever the government has in mind and, um, and a, uh, you know, kind of big uh, company CEO uh, uh, at some point uh, flies a little bit too close to the sun. Can I interject? Because I feel like you guys have given such uh, smart articulation on, on Tesla, the stock, Tesla, the company, and you've ended a bit with Musk and talking about his place in society. And I feel like if we can end on a, <laughs> on a less, 
on a lower note than the high level of conversation. Do you feel like there are, uh, there's worth spending one second of time on the sensational part of Musk? Like, you know, now there's this cage match, cage match between him and Zuckerberg. What do you think of Musk as, as a leader? And what do you think of people paying attention to the shenanigans? Well, this whole latest thing that um, when we're recording this about uh, just over uh, 24 hours after this whole cage match thing, uh, I mean, I thought it was a joke, to be honest. I mean, I I mean, first I thought it was just a pure joke that it was. Uh, but then, you know, when, when they start uh, saying that, well, they actually mean this, like, wait a minute, there's just no way. I mean, this is going to be I still have a hard time to believing that this thing, whatever it really means, you know, is, is anything but. These people having had, you know, just knocked back one too many, and uh, and uh, now now they're uh, they're just they for some reason they, they they felt like they didn't have enough attention, you know, that <laughs> they, they needed to they needed to come up with something more sensational that was even more off the wall that that the world was not uh, printing their name too many times, you know, in the paper. <laughs> I, I really don't know what to make of it. I, I do that if it were to happen, and they were really serious about it. Uh, I don't think it's a positive. I mean, I mean, you know, this gets really, really weird. But my thoughts went back to the 1804 duel between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> you know, and I mean, maybe they won't have weapons this time, but the outcome could be, uh, you know, a little a bit dangerous if you put uh, two grown men into a cage and are told to be fighting each other essentially with almost no rules. That just, you know, I, I mean. You know, you talk about unprecedented, and we were always talking about here. I mean, Tesla is one big case study of all sorts of unprecedented things happening in on all sides of the equation. But if this actually does happen, I think this would actually take the cake. You know, I just, I just hope that if they, if it, if it does go on, that you know, Tesla will be will be sponsoring that because I'm sure a lot of people would be watching. Uh, my money is on Zuckerberg. I, I, I understand that he's been doing jujitsu for the last couple of years. I think it'd be interesting to throw uh, Jeff Bezos in there because I know that he's uh, he's been hitting the gym quite hard lately. So it's a it's a crazy world that we live in. I I like it. You know, let's put it this way: if this whole uh, tech company thing doesn't work out, I mean, I guess they will have um, a second career in something um, uh, closer to Los Angeles. You know, the entertainment building, the enter entertainment world, somehow because uh, this is just too weird. I just at this point and. I believe it when I see it. Let's put it that way. I somehow don't think this will happen. But if I'm wrong, God bless. Well, high and low conversation here on investing on investing experts. Start with the high and with the low. Anton and James, I really appreciate the conversation. You've both written articles expressing some of the case you laid out here. Thanks for extrapolating so much on your theses. You can find Anton's articles on Tesla and the other stocks he covers on Seeking Alpha. You can follow James Ford's The Pragmatic Investor on Seeking Alpha. And transcript of this episode and all podcast episodes are available on Seeking Alpha as well. And uh, thanks for joining us. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.